So, um, I was thinking. The morning crew, or my point of view, have a series as a dessert for their TFOS, but the evening crew, they don't. So, how do we get around that? Well, I thought to myself, you do another series, of course. And here we go. And if you do enjoy, please drop a like. That tells me that you, at the very least, like to click like buttons. Alrighty, on to the dessert. When Death Will This Meet, Part 1. Written by Andrew's second account. Did it resist? The captain asked. It's a male, and as you already guessed, it's sentient, so no, he didn't resist, replied the ship's veterinarian, a shalkoth named Ginter from Vree. Captain Anticton rolled his eyes. He forgave the woman for her poor attitude. Her race of graceful, two-armed, four-legged undulates were a law-abiding sort of people. They could never be comfortable in the exotic animal and slave trade, even when their job was only to keep the merchandise alive and in good health. It was fortuitous, then, that she didn't have much of a choice, being merchandise herself. How was it to say that she was for sale, only that she wouldn't be for sale until the better veterinarian came along. A tiny mouth like that, he wouldn't have stood much chance. He must be smarter than he looks, the captain said with a chuckle. Be grateful to it, since you don't need to patch it up. You can have the rest of the day to yourself, unless something comes up. The short fur on her back, brown laced with white, lowered a bit. He wasn't used to seeing her without her hackles up all the time. He wondered if it meant that he was going soft. He'd have to extend her hours tomorrow to make up for it. There is something you should know about him, she added before turning to leave, her tone brighter than normal. He seems like a nice young man, but I think he could have done more harm than you suspect. And he resisted. He's heavily muscled much more so than even a high-grab world would require. And he's a carnivore. That gave the captain pause. Carnivorous species were a rarity in the universe, and sentient ones were even rarer still. In fact, he couldn't think of a single intelligent species that routinely chose to eat the flesh of other creatures. Except for one. Glancing to the deck plates beneath his broad hooves, he thought immediately of the lithe predator lurking in its cells in the bowels of his vessel. A night beast from a Class 11 death world, its sentience was highly debatable. Captain Anticton ran his thick tongue over his blunt teeth. He didn't think this hairless whelp was anything like that at all. That is not possible, he said. Our newest guest, uh, what did he call himself? Human said the vet. Named Stee, then. The human has herbivore teeth. I don't see how he could possibly be a carnivore. Of course, he did not display his teeth much, but when he did, I noticed a set of fangs. Very, very small. Almost like the rest of his teeth. But there, she pointed to a space between her incisor and molars. Two on top and two at the bottom. Little fangs. Really? He didn't believe her. What else? Don't tell me you didn't notice the way it stares. It's two eyes. How do they make you feel? Deeply, instinctively fearful. Creeped out might be a better word. 
The thing was tiny, chest high, but... And when I was trying to figure out what to feed it, the gint continued. I was shocked to discover that fully one half of the rations in its craft by calorie content were comprised of animal protein. She looked sick. He could sympathize. It was one thing to talk about eating flesh in an academic sense, but to actually have seen an animal's carcass dressed for consumption up close. Disgusting. Heinz taken, he said. I'll be careful around it. That meant that he'd be armed and wouldn't hesitate to shoot it. Novelties like a new species were worth money, but not that much. Not enough to risk his life. He might even just get it for fun. Every time he went on vacation, he spent more money than the creature was probably worth on more pointless and less satisfying pursuits. There is another thing to be wary of, said Antignun, thinking aloud. If he has the significant amount of musculature he doesn't need, he might be some kind of super soldier, engineered to be that way. Maybe, said the bat. There is no way for me to confirm or refute that, but it is certainly a possibility. So, we have a carnivorous super soldier locked in a bunk, not even a cell, let alone a reinforced cell. That's just fucking great. Add to that, the night beast caged in the bilge, and it's a wonder why we're all aren't dead ten times over already. Well, in fairness, Stephen seems really nice, said the vet. Maybe make them fight, chuckled the ship's executive officer. He had walked in to begin his shift while the captain and Ginter had been speaking. He smiled. Maybe. End of chapter. Alrighty, I hope everybody's ready for the dessert for tonight. Well, my tonight, at least. Your afternoon or evening, or whatever it may be. If you want to see more of the series, you know what to do. And if you haven't heard yet, because I keep talking about it, me and the missus did a podcast this weekend with two hours of me rambling on about sci-fi. That sort of thing interests you, check the description. There will be a link. Anyways, on to the story. Night beasts, night stalkers, night terrors, the people of the night. Putting one in the same room as anyone, even a possible super soldier, meant sentencing him or her to die. Those nocturnal hunters were the stuff of nightmares and horrors, purely carnivorous. They could eat plant matter like any normal race, but would become blind, start to wither away, and eventually die off without flesh to supplement it. They were small compared to most beings, but incredibly strong and moved faster than the eye could track. With a mouth of razor-sharp teeth, claws to eight centimeters long on their feet, and a kick powerful enough to take the head off a massive ice-walking Kent, they were near-perfect lad predators. The night beasts hailed from Nyx, a high-gravity Class Eleven death world far out on the northern galactic rim, and thankfully... Not anywhere else. Calling them sentient was a matter of debate. They had no technology to monitor. No one had dared step foot on their world long enough to study them peacefully, and those that were taken by force tended to be less than cooperative. Indeed, no less than three ships had had their crews slaughtered to a being after poaching a live night beast. In two of the cases, where scans showed only the creature alive on board, 
The ships were all railgunned into oblivion just to be on the same side. The insurance companies would have much rather written them off as a total loss than risked recovering them. The third case had been different. The ship had been recovered in orbit around Nix, with a single escape pod missing and nothing but dead bodies aboard. Logs indicated that the creature had gotten loose when the ship was some 20,000 light-years away, warping space at full speed for its home port. Curiously, in order to make the ship reverse course, the emergency lockdown had to have been somehow overridden and the ship's AI reprogrammed. That's not to say no study whatsoever had been done on these things. Solitary specimens had been killed, collected, and studied, but there was only so much a carcass could tell scientists. From the necropsies, they said their brains seemed capable of intelligent thought, but theory and practice were often very different. There was no way of knowing for sure, but AIs tasked with decrypting their language from one or two illicit probes seemed to think that they were capable. But the recordings of the escape indicated on all three of those vessels played back nothing more than an inarticulate screams of rage, untranslatable gibberish, and demands for intercourse. Intercourse this, intercourse that, intercourse you, and so on. Even as they tore throats out with their bare hands and disemboweled stomachs with clawed bare feet. These were, of course... Blatant mistranslations, despite AI protestations to the contrary. Since the most recent incident years ago, Antikton hadn't heard of anyone else illegally visiting the planet, let alone claiming one of the beasts. It could have been that they were simply successful and no one heard about it, but he doubted it. Then two standard weeks ago, he and his crew of mostly willing servants had been offered more credits than he'd seen outside a lottery drawing, for one of the monstrosities alive and in good condition. Having a veterinarian who couldn't refuse to work had been a gift from the five lords of heaven. He had agreed to procure the night beast for a very noble buyer, a member of the idle rich, interested in exotic animals for his menagerie. The pay would be an enormous and included capture tools, medical equipment like tranquilizers, and a translator for his vet to implant and retrofitting his ship to hold the thing before the venture had even begun. The translator was almost funny, with a thing not so expensive and hazardous to implant. The buyer had insisted that if worse came to worse, they should try to reason with rather than kill and lose what credits he had already invested. The easy part was acquiring it. It had been off on a solo night hunt somewhere in the plains of Nix's broken surface when they found it. It only took one dot of an especially developed drug used to tranquilize, though it was so powerful that it could have killed off his entire crew and all of his merchandise were divided up evenly between them. The being had only four appendages, smooth skin with soft lavender tone, and had covered itself in skins that weren't its own. A length of jet black fur swept back from where it had attached the top of its head and ran down where its lower appendages met its torso. Two razor-sharp claws were present on its feet, each almost a decimeter long, with a third tiny vestigial claw on the outsides. Its three fingers on each hand were as blunt as any sentience. It was a large specimen of its kind at 175 centimeters, and incredibly dense with heavy muscles. Four men had to carry it onto the levitation pallet, 
and then on into its hardened composite cage, which itself was inside a heavily reinforced cargo hold in the belly of the ship. So far, the creature had killed only three of the crewmen. As far as the Captain Anticton was concerned, there was already an acceptable return on investment. Fewer people to share the prize, and he got to learn who among his men was dumb enough to approach a docile-looking creature during feedings, despite being specifically told not to do so. He had hoped to limit the amount of flesh the thing consumed in order to keep it in a weakened state. But that wasn't going to happen now. It hadn't even finished with the first course before it killed the other two crewmen. They had tried to pull their already dead friend from its cage. Instead, they only ended up joining him inside. How a meter and a half wide, two and a half meter tall Tatoran male could fit between ten centimeter wide gaps in the bars was one of the mysteries of nature. It went to show that if one pulled hard enough, anything was possible. The captain wasn't worried. The night beast ate three meals per night cycle, as best as he could tell. They would eventually recover all their wayward crew and as it threw the finished bones from its cage. It had tried to kill a fourth and fifth time, but only managed to take a tentacle off one crewman and a shatter another's upper hem. They hadn't gotten close enough to, no. Video footage proved that the thing had thrown the thigh bones of the consumed crewman at the compatriots with deadly force and accuracy. He hadn't known that it could do that. Quick-witted observers erected a force field between the cage and the entrance to the hold just in time to prevent lethal follow-up projectiles. Not once since it had been here had it done anything but roar and scream. He tried to talk to it a few times, but got nowhere. His conversations always ended the same way, with him having to blast it with a cold water hard enough to kill a man just to shut it out. It rarely worked at first, but when he did it for long enough, it usually just ended up accepting its weight, silently gasping for air, half drowned in the corner of its cell as the water pounded it. He didn't do that more than a few times. It's not that he felt sorry for it, or didn't feel like getting vengeance for his crew, although he could not care less. It was just that he had better things to do than torture a stupid beast. No, he would definitely not be putting the human anywhere within reach of this thing. The snuff vids on the dismemberment would be valuable, sure, but perhaps not as valuable as a slave from an uncharted world. Those, like Steve then, were totally off-record, with no one to come looking for them, and nowhere to escape to. Some of the less reputable slave buyers would pop a top credit for the likes of him. That... And he didn't feel like giving the night beast yet another week's worth of hearty meals. End of chapter. More, you cried into the void. And who am I to argue? So, here is another one, just like the other one, but with a higher chapter number. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. When Death Will Does Meet, Part 3 the captain caught Kinder's eye, and she frowned at the Exo's notion. Apparently, she didn't like the idea of staging animal fights for fun and profit either, but probably for reasons like morality and empathy. No, I don't think I'm going to feed Steve in to the Night Beast. Not today, anyway. Probably. Turning to his Exo, Anakton said, Tell me, Marshy, you were part of the tracking and recovery team. Where is this thing from? 
That's the question of the hour, said the other man, using a set of grasping tentacles to rub his proboscis. He may have been part of a convoy, fell out of a massive group warp bubble, and become lost. Each ship has a warp field generator on its own, but it's small and crude. Tukukukukuruk in engineering looked at the computer too, to try and find out where it came from. But even with the AI helping, she says that it's totally wrecked. We think that's what caused him to be stranded in the first place. The ship is powered by a... Antibatter. What? Bellowed the captain. Once we found out, we jettisoned it. Thank the gods and lords. The captain shook his head in disbelief. That's just insane. So wait a minute. If it has a warp drive and is powered by antimatter of all things, why would you jump to the conclusion that it was part of a convoy? It is the only thing that makes sense, Marshy explained. The maximum range of this craft with a full containment field was about 400 light years. 40% of its containment field had been expended, so I take it there are no habitable worlds within 160 light years. You're quick the math, sir, and no. The captain rubbed his furrowed bow and sighed. So, it is possible that it will be missed. That's not good news. Maybe they'll chalk it up to the hazards of a driveless warp travel, the Exo reasoned. And if they do come looking, if there's a whole group of these things trying to get somewhere at once, then it must be pretty important. So, I doubt they'll start right away. I've got a super predator and a possible super soldier on my ship. The human was probably part of some alien invasion force heading for one of the fringe territories. His ship looked exactly like an orbital drop pod with a warp field generator attached to it, doesn't it? There was some evidence that it was a multi-stage craft, yes. The drive section may have been designed to be discarded in order to allow planetary entry of the capsule. But there is the question of why it would travel using a convoy's warp bubble when it has a perfectly good drive of its own, which it won't use and then discard before planetfall. Could be a standardized design, but I really doubt that. But if that's not the case, then we're back to the questions of range, he huffed. And? And? He lifted his snout from his hand where it'd been and buried in frustration. And there were no weapons aboard the craft, said Mushy. Though he was wearing a surprisingly strong set of armor, it appears to be impervious to vacuum, radiation, heat, cold, small arms fire, large arms fire, poisonous atmosphere, and hostile wildlife, among other things. The thing is tough, but flexible. His people have that kind of technology. Not really, no, the Exo explained, gesturing a tentacle in the negative. Not in the sense that you mean. It's not terribly advanced. Any of the galactic races could make something like that. They just couldn't make use of it. It took four of us just to drag the thing into the cargo hold. The captain's expression went flat. And uh, he was wearing it. Yes, yes he was. In here? And Tukton asked, pointing to the deck. Not on some other extravehicular excursion. Yes, in here. Miexa pulled his proboscis tightly shut, the equivalent of pursing his lips. It seemed that he didn't like where this conversation was going either. A thought occurred to the Terran. Then how in the seven hells in Borrigan did you even get him out of it? Oh, um, we asked him to remove it. Asked? Yes, he's very nice. I don't give a crap how nice he is. I just, uh... Marshy hastened to interrupt. Sir, I don't think he knows he's been abducted into slavery. That was just plain dumb. 
his assessment of the being's race fell a few notches. On the other hand, it was entirely possible that a genetic freak was not a representation of his people. In fact, it was entirely likely that he wasn't. The more he thought about it, the more it made sense. If this was a super soldier on its way to war, the thing had only to sit in the pod and land and fight. It didn't need to be very smart, which might have contributed to why its computer was destroyed. Explained how it couldn't find its way back, and explained why it didn't know that it was a piece of merchandise. Heck, the thing was probably so dumb that its people wouldn't even be bothered to give it a gun until after it landed and had a safe direction in which to point it. It was probably programmed to be compliant and take orders, which was why it seemed to get along with everyone else. One more thing before I go, sir, the vet said meekly. He had forgotten that Ginter was even standing there. It, well, it looks similar to, well, um... To what? To, 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 um... She stuttered softly. Spit it out! He said impatiently, motioning for her to continue. That thing, she whispered, pointing to the deck below her feet. The captain and Exa each sucked in a breath of air. He hadn't thought about it, but more he did, the more the captain realized that she was right. They were both bipedal tetrapods, for one. It was an efficient but inherently unstable design, suited for organisms that were either on the move or at rest and nowhere in between. They were both mostly bald for another. Their heads were a different shape, but not really as much as any two other species might have been. The coloration was different. This human was pale, mottled cream color, and the night beasts generally were anywhere from light blue to purple to jet black. There were the same general height, from heel to scalp, though the human might have been taller and bulkier, actually. And then there were the eyes, forward-facing, like gun barrels aimed right at you. Right and dangerous. He hoped that the humans didn't glow like the night beasts did. The thought sent a chill down his spine. On the other hand, comparing the two just felt played stupid. Engineered soldier or not. Stephen was one step above a friendly pet and came from a people with an adequate technology. If this were a true case of convergent evolution, his people would also have to be from a class 11 death world, almost exactly like Nick's. That simply couldn't be because death worlds did not, could not produce true sentience, only feral monstrosities. The captain rolled his eyes and sighed internally. He would still perform his due diligence and try his best to determine if the thing was posed any real risks, even if it was highly skeptical. Axo, is it safe to talk to uh, the human? He asked. I think so, said Marshy, with Ginter nodding in agreement. His translator is working great now, and I was chatting with him for a bit. Told him I had to lock him up in his room for operational security reasons. He didn't have the clearance to be wandering about. I think he bought it. After all, we've learned of him. I wouldn't let slip that he's anything other than a guest. He might not be as a compliant. The captain thought for a moment. Ginter, in your evening is cancelled. You'll start developing poisons and sedatives to use on this thing immediately. Airborne, but harmless to everyone else, if possible. Go, now. The woman nodded and slowly trotted off the bridge. Even her hoofbeats sounded dejected. I am going to have the chat with Stephen before I retire for the evening, said Captain Antictun. With that, he stood from his chair and left without another word.
End of chapter. Greetings to you, night crew. Time for a little bit of dessert. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. When Death Will Does Meet, Part 4 The captain pulled up the one chair in the cell and took a seat. Across from him, their guest lounged on his padded bunk. It was meant to be uncomfortably small, but with him it seemed decadently large. His unusual coverings were folded up behind him as a pillow, and a blanket covered him from his waist to his toes. His chest and arms were exposed, showing off his substantial musculature. Less than a meter of space stood between them in this padded cell. Nice place you got here, the human said. I stayed in a terrestrial ship once and they'd got nothing on you guys. Compared to our spaceport, well, this ship's like a floating palace. How do you do it? The captain certainly hadn't expected to be praised for the accommodations, but given its small stature and the confines of the craft they found him in, he should not have been surprised. Well, we value our guests and strive to provide the best that we can offer for them, he replied, trying his best to sound sincere. Gods and lords, this thing was stupid. But the bunks for our crew are what you might typically find on any military or patrol spacecraft. This was a lie across the board. He had no idea what the inside of a military or patrol craft looked like. Had his quarters with two stories and about a hundred square meters. Wow. Thank you for the guest treatment then, the human said. And I want to thank you for rescuing me out there. I thought, uh, I thought that module would be my tube, buried alive in space. The captain could emphasize. It was any space's worst nightmare. He suppressed a shudder. Really, sending this man into a life of servitude was doing him a favor. His potential buyer wouldn't put such a novelty to work at hard labor when he could be used for a conversation piece. He would probably spend his days entertaining and doing parlor tricks as a house slave. Not a bad way to love. Better than death by starvation in a metal pod. Well, it was the least we could do here on the Bright Hope, he said. The ship's name was the Halcyon Harvester. We were a few light years out, but when we picked up your warp field collapsing and saw that you couldn't get going again, well, we knew that we had to help. You can actually detect warp bubbles on other vessels. Real time, from light years away, the human asked, setting up a little straighter in his bunk. Had he been taller, he would have hit his head. The captain was taken back. He definitely hadn't expected the human to have cared of something like that. He hadn't even expected him to be capable of caring about something like that. Well, um, yeah, and Tung replied, rubbing his chin. How do you do it? The smaller man asked. Does the wolf field project itself ahead of the bubble? Or maybe the compressed space causes ripples ahead of it, like a stone in water? This creature was not stupid, not by a long shot. That, um, that sort of technology is classified, Captain Antikton replied. In truth, he had no idea how the hell they did it. That was probably a question for the guys who built the sensor suite that they bought. All right, like the Prime Directive, Stevens said. Perhaps seeing the confusion on the captain's face, he hastened to clarify. Humans have speculated that there might be a rule that prevents more advanced sentience from providing technology to less advanced sentience for fear of disrupting the natural course of their development. Ah, no, that was about the stupidest thing that he'd ever heard. It's more of a security issue. We can't give away our technology when we don't know how it might be used. That was a lie, of course. 
but much more believable than the idea that he, or anyone else who wasn't an anthropologist, gave a flying shit about the development of some primitives. Nothing aboard his ship could be procured by anyone in the open market in a spacecraft or law enforcement supply store. He just didn't want to admit to this human that he had no idea how the sensors worked, and this excuse played well in keeping their guest behind a locked door. May I ask some questions about you? Antigton asked, to get a better idea of your status. Of course, of course, came the quick reply. Good. The captain made a show of pulling out a datapad and a stylus. So, uh, what is your profession? I am an explorer, the human said with a nod, an almost universal indicator of yes. You are not a soldier, the captain asked. You were wearing armor when we found you, and beneath that you wore coverings with insignia. Oh no, he replied. I used to be an airman. The captain's translator supplied warrior whose domain is aerospace for the unusual human-speak word. That his people had a single simple word for that was disconcerting. Still, there were plenty of harmless races with deep martial traditions. But I'm a civilian. Civilian became one who was not serving in the military, as if that wasn't already an assumption in the language. Again, disconcerting, but not terribly unusual. What are you exploring? The captain asked, idly typing nonsense into his datapad. Oh, the, the galaxy, said Stephen. I'm conducting humanity's first man extrasolar spaceflight and our first man effective FDL test. It didn't go as planned. We kind of figured that out as we recovered you from the void, said the captain. And those symbols on your skin covering, they remind me of some military identifications and rank that I've seen in a few races using. He pulled his coverings from behind him, a bright orange one piece with numerous pockets, zippers, fasteners, and insignia. Not at all. None of these are even remotely related to the military, he said, pointing at each one in turn as he explained. This one is a government-funded explorer organization I work for called NASA. This one is a government that funds it, the United States of America. These are for the mission and the spacecraft that brought me here and malfunctioned. Project Pathfinder and Victoria. This last patch with the wings means that I'm a pilot, and it has my first name, Stephen, and my family name, McLaren. My tribe name, Lieutenant Colonel, and my clan name, Usaf. Okay, the captain replied. I thought as much. So, this thing really wasn't an engineered super soldier, or any kind of soldier at all, for that matter. That still left other questions. And my suit wasn't armor, Stephen continued, folding his orange skin covering. It's just for survival in case of a hull breach. Were you genetically engineered? asked the captain. No. Not at all. 100% natural. Why? It is just one of those questions we have to ask. There have been concerns with unnatural biological contaminations, he said. Again, not true at all. But it sounded better than, I need to know if I should put you in a stronger cage. The captain licked his teeth and snout. Next question. Are you carnivorous? For a moment, the man said nothing as he drew his eyebrows together. Like an expression for confusion, perhaps. He mean like, um, eating meat. The single word meat had been translated as flesh of prey animal. Now that was a red flag. End of chapter. I hope you all have a nice sweet tooth for tonight's dessert. I know I do. This one will be the last one for the week, and the next one will be on Monday. Well, I try and take the weekend off. Again. But on Sunday there will be another podcast for those who are interested. 
Anyways, on to the story. When Death Wilders Meet, Part 5 Yes, that is exactly what I mean by carnivorous. Although we just call... The captain used the human word, meat, flesh. We have no special words for that, uh, provide additional context. Right, um, well, uh, we aren't carnivals, said the human. Not at all, I mean, uh, we can digest flesh, if it's been laboriously prepared and heat treated, but no one ever does it, and it's just morally wrong to kill something to just eat it. The idea of it is just disgusting, but because of its extremely high caloric density, it's sometimes artificially grown to use as emergency rations. I see. That explains why it was in the food preparations on your craft. I guess there was some in those meals, now that you mention it, Stephen offered, scratching his face. I just never eat that part. I mean, uh, we're not even designed for it. Look at our teeth. The ones up front are for chopping vegetables, and the ones at the back are for grinding coarse plant matter. That seemed reasonable enough. And your eyes, he asked. They face forward, binocular vision. Oh, humans are descended from arboreal mammals, he explained. We jumped from tree to tree, swinging on vines. We obviously needed the depth perception to be able to properly time our jumps, grab the vines, and escape dangerous predators that were faster, larger, and stronger. You lived with carnivores on your planet, ones larger and stronger than you, with, well, no defense, but, um... With no natural defenses to protect yourself. Um, well, yeah, he said slowly, scratching his face. We got lucky, you know, evolving intelligence to avoid them, and we were pretty safe, building our tree villages high up off the ground where no predator could reach us. You seem to have a lot of muscle mass, the captain said. He showed his own arm to the man, spreading his thick layer of feathers flat. It looked spindly next to Stephen's though it was much longer and attached to his taller frame. Well, it is necessary for our lifestyle, Stephen said. I imagine you evolved from six-legged ground dweller, but we humans need an extra muscle to support our entire weight on only two legs, to climb trees, to jump from one tree to another, and to grab onto the things and lift our entire body weight up in a single hand, if necessary. And our world has pretty high gravity compared to here. I think it was once told that if our gravity was any higher, we could never have achieved early spaceflight with chemical rockets. Makes sense, the captain said. How high is your gravity anyway? Um, I don't know the space units or whatever. But a meter is this long, Stephen said, indicating the height on the bulkhead. The captain made a note. And the acceleration of gravity at my planet's sea level is 9.8 for those per second squared. Does that help? And a second is uh, one, two, three. The captain noted the tempo of the man's counting and plugged that and the other information into his data pad and waited for his ship's AI to do the calculations. Though a rough approximation, the results were staggering. 4.2 galactic standard gravities. Unbelievable. Still, that the human was strong told him nothing. They already knew that just from the weight of his environmental suit. That didn't even mean that he or his people were dangerous, nor did anything else he had learned thus far, aside from the peculiarities of their language. Those types of errors were bound to crop up from time to time, and should always be taken with a lick of salt. Wars have been started over worse, 
and sometimes better translations. You seem to be very intelligent, very reasonable, an utterly harmless being, Stephen, he told the human, and I am very glad to have rescued you. He meant that the thing would fetch a fortune. As a nobleman's personal acrobat, he could be wonderfully entertaining to watch. Why, thank you, the other man replied with a laugh. I'm glad you rescued me too. What happens now? Oh, well, if you can tell us where you live, then we'll get you back home, he replied. The post-primitive explorer could never know. At least in any system, Antictum could recognize the astronomical coordinates of its own star. It was a safe offer. Otherwise, we take you to somewhere to be processed into the galactic community, and we ultimately set you up with a job. No one eats for free. Of course, the other man said, nodding. But I don't know where my world is. Antictum was quite glad, and not at all surprised to hear that. It would make things a lot less awkward if he didn't have to refuse to take Stephen home. Nevertheless, he would play along. Hmm, that's not going to make this easy. Is there anything that you can tell me where your world is? He placed his hand on the smaller man's shoulder and gave his best comforting expression. What if I gave you the galaxy map to look at? No, uh, that, that won't help her. It means nothing to me, the human said, scratching his face again. Oh well, said the captain, using body language to indicate his own helplessness. The human probably wouldn't understand it, but it was a natural response. He really, honestly, couldn't do anything to help him, and thankfully, Stephen was perfectly willing to accept that, which felt rather oddly convenient. Are you sure you don't want to see the galaxy map? Antikton asked, putting one up in the data pad. I can show you where we picked you up. Well, I can certainly take a look, Stephen said as the captain turned the map on the data pad to face him, a single point clearly marked. After a moment, the human replied, No, no, this doesn't help at all. Sorry. Do you know, maybe, the distance and direction that you have traveled, or were supposed to have traveled? The captain asked, prodding a little further. No, the other man said, shaking his head. No idea. The ship was fully automated. I was just inside of it as a publicity stunt, more than anything. So the human government could say, we sent a man farther than ever before with this new starship engine and brought him home safely. Too bad they missed up on that second part, am I right? Indeed. The captain definitely began to feel something just wasn't adding up. There was no way this being, as smart as it was, didn't know how far it had traveled, even if it couldn't tell the direction. They would have been planning for months for a newly advanced people's first expedition past this solar system. He would have known the distance, and probably the direction too. He would have had to have seen the galaxy map of some kind, even just a section of it. The captain could have zoomed into a 200 light year radius of where they found him, and Stephen should have been able to orient himself. Space was three-dimensional, but the galaxy was on a plane, dammit. Common celestial landmarks wasn't that abstract a concept to understand. A moment, please he told the human before turning his attention to the pad in his hand, this time not merely for the sake of appearance. The captain typed in a message to the ship's AI as quickly as he could. List all habitable worlds within 200 light years of where we picked up the human. No worlds matching that criteria, came the reply. 
He thought for a moment as the deeply unsettling feeling just barely tickled at the edges of his mind. He typed again. List all worlds that meet the following criteria. Oxygen in the atmosphere, liquid water on the surface, gravity between three and five standard units. Location within 200 light years of where we found the human. One world found. RGT-9873A-3. Discovered by Tzitzitic explorers. Its name, Kritik-Ikadrol-Yolt-Isk. Translates to loss of sanity in broken blue with hope abandoned. This world is not habitable, he typed. He knew damn well what the answer was to that. No. RGT-9873A-3 is a class 12. Habitation not possible. Galactic regulation prevents approach within 100 standard light years. General quarantine in effect. The captain blinked slowly and swallowed hard. He felt his heart thumping in his chest, pounding harder and faster with each passing second. His hands began to shake and his legs fell loose. A sickening, sinking weight grew in the pit of his stomach. He took a deep breath, blinking again, and turned his data pad off. He wanted the screen locked if the inevitable came out of nowhere. His side off weighed heavily on his side. He dared not even look at it. It would only get him killed faster. End of chapter.